Hello, church. Um, tonight we have three Bible readings. So the first one we're kicking off in the Old Testament in Daniel. So it's Daniel chapter 7 from verses 9 to 14. I'll give you a moment. Okay, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched them because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And now we're jumping over to uh, 1 John, chapter 1, starting at verse 1 to 3. Okay, 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And now... Uh, right to the back of the book, uh, Revelation chapter 22, uh, from verse 1 to 21. Okay, chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. 
When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who he hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Afternoon, everyone. I see a couple of familiar faces from this morning. You come back again. <sighs> Brave. Uh, I'm John, by the way, just in case you don't know me. In 2005, Time magazine ranked John Robert Stott among the top most 100 influential people in the world. Have you heard of John Stott? He's must be important. He's the top 100 most influential people in the world in 2005. He's a strange choice. Uh, he was a Christian and an Anglican minister in England. He was a theologian and he wrote about God. And Time magazine ranked him in the first 100 most influential people in the world. On the 27th of April, 2011, John Stott died at the age of 90. And Billy Graham said, the evangelical world has lost one of its greatest spokesmen and I have lost one of my close personal friends and advisors. I look forward to seeing him again when I go to heaven. Now, how do you reckon a guy like John Stott, influential, very, very bright, um, probably well, well educated, how do you think he prayed? Well, I've actually got one of his prayers that he prayed each morning. It was uh, written in one of his uh, biographies. I'm going to read it out to you. And just to give it uh, a context, it's the prayer he prayed in the morning. So I'm just going to keep the morning references in it. Okay, And at the end, if uh, it resonates with you, 
Please join with me in saying Amen at the end. Here's his prayer. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe, Lord Jesus, I worship you, Saviour and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, Sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Holy, blessed, glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. You know what I love about that prayer? It's a dialogue. It's a two-way discussion, a two-way talk with God, where John Stott has listened to God first. He's obviously read the Bible and he's memorised and he's internalised God's word. And everything that he is praying to God reflects something about what he's learned about God. He's learned what God is like and has informed him in how to speak with God. <clears throat> there's reverence and there's affection, there's gratitude and there's love and there's trust all rolled into one. And his prayer reflects his relationship with God. When you think about your own prayer life, what do you think it says to you about your relationship with God? How does what you pray about reflect your relationship with God? Does your prayer reflect that you have a close relationship with him? Does your prayer reflect that you know something about the true God, the real God of the Bible? Or are you praying to a God that you, you hope exists, but you're not too sure what he's like? And you're just throwing ideas out like, uh, oh God, uh, if you're there, or uh, God, I'm not too sure what you're like, uh, I would really like this. Amen. There's something tragic about a prayer like that, I think. Um, with John Stott's prayer, it really does reflect a relationship. Um, I remember going for a drive one day, and I, I, uh, it's in the days when it was probably safer to do it, I picked up a hitchhiker, and as we were um, riding along, uh, he asked me what I did, and I said, oh, I worked at a church, it was a different church, and he said, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm into God, I, I pray. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, that's really good. He says, yep, um, I always think about all the things I want and I ask. Uh, he doesn't really give me much of what I want. Now, 
I was driving and I, I guess I wasn't thinking very clearly. So all I could come out with at that time was, gee, I hate it when people treat me, me like that. And he said, what do, what do you mean? I said, well, if all you want out of him is what he can give you, it doesn't sound like much of a relationship, does it? And it was a very quiet ride after that. Um, <clears throat> we're coming back to a, a split sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. You won't find the Apostles' Creed in the Bible, but you will see the content of the Apostles' Creed throughout the Bible. And we've already looked at, way, way back if you remember, <clears throat> the first line, the first sentence in the Apostles' Creed, which is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And today, we continue meditating on the Bible basis of the next sentence, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And I heard many, many voices saying that along with me when we read out the Apostles' Creed. And Craig will continue the next part next Sunday, which I think is um, a doozy of a part about the nature of uh, Jesus and really looking forward to it. I think tonight's going to be a breeze in one sense. It's something that, well, when I say that, I think in a nutshell, it's this. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. Focusing on Jesus's unique role or unique uh, job, his, his um, plan of what he has come to do, his mission. Number two, Jesus is the Father's only Son, focusing on the Father and the Son's unique relationship. Number three, Jesus Christ, the Father's only Son, is our Lord. I heard you say it. I don't know if everyone said it, but it sounded like a lot of you said it. I said it. What does it mean, our Lord? It is focusing on... Jesus's position and our response or responsibility. These three biblical Christian beliefs, I imagine may be older news for many of you and you've heard it before and you've said the Apostles' Creed many times. Um, and maybe some of you, it would be totally new, any one of those three points that I've mentioned. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be great if uh, this evening... As we meditate on these truths together, it actually helps reshape your prayer and my prayer and helps us reflect a better relationship with God and helps us to know Jesus better and to love him better and serve him better. Well, that's my goal as we come to this part of the Apostles' Creed and drawing from the Bible what this, these sta this statement means, this sentence means. Uh, let's dive in. The first point, we believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first point. First of all, Christ is not Jesus's surname, as well as not being a swear word in the Bible. It's a title. And it's one that actually stretches way back into the Old Testament by the Hebrew title, Messiah. And you read about that in Daniel 
chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. I'm not actually going to expand any more about that, only to let you know that this word Messiah, as used as a title, as a proper noun, is only used in this instance twice in these two verses in Daniel. Only twice in the whole Old Testament. But that word Messiah, the Hebrew word, when you come into the New Testament, it's also the Greek word Christos, which comes into English as being Christ, which we're all familiar with. How can it have been such a so um, few times used in the Old Testament, but so many times used in the New Testament? Well, the reason is this, that although that the proper noun, Messiah, was only those two times mentioned in the Old Testament, the, the meaning of the word behind it has actually all the way through the Old Testament and the word Messiah is a noun, actually it's got the idea from a verb, a doing word, which means anointed. And literally what being anointed was, was someone pours oil over your head, olive oil over your head, in order to uh, signify, to symbolise that you've been given a particular job to do. And in the Old Testament, these jobs that were um, initiated by being anointed, having oil poured on your head, there were three groups, prophets, <clears throat> priests and kings. They're the three groups that were anointed, or uh, if we, we use the, the Hebrew word, that messiahed. They were messiahed, they were anointed. And it was a symbol of giving them authority for their jobs. Another thing is that unless God gave any of those three groups particular permission, they only had authority, they were only um, commissioned for one of those jobs. So a king could not be a prophet and a prophet could not be a priest unless God gave them particular permission. And there are times in the Old Testament when that happened. But ordinarily, a king was not to act like a priest. There's a very interesting story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel about a particular king who tried to do the job of a priest and he got de-kinged for it. <clears throat> Another particular interesting thing about these uh, people who have been anointed God can even talk about a pagan king from Persia called King Cyrus as God's anointed. He's been anointed, he's been commissioned to be king of Persia. One interesting thing about it is it's in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1. This was probably uh, written before King Cyrus actually appeared. That's pretty amazing for a start. The other pretty amazing thing is it's the king of Persia. He's a pagan. He's got nothing to do with the God of the Hebrews. <clears throat> even whether Cyrus acknowledged God or not, even when he uh, knew it or not, God had commissioned Cyrus to do a job. Isn't that interesting? God can be commissioning the president of America the president, the um, uh, um, 
president of Russia, uh, the, uh, the leader of China, all of those nations around the world have been appointed by God for a particular purpose, even if they know it and even if they don't know it. Every example from the Old Testament of people that God ordered to be anointed, whether they were prophets, priests or kings, had one thing in common. I'm wondering if you know what that is. The one thing in common was that they all were imperfect. You look at all of their stories in the Old Testament and you'll find story after story, oh, they're doing a really good job, and all of a sudden God allows in his word part of their story they fail. Oftentimes they fail big time. They were imperfect. Take, for example, the most well-known anointed king of Israel, King David. You've heard the stories of King David's adultery, of him murdering. And although this doesn't actually get spoken about too much, I reckon he is the prime example of a bad father. It was a terrible example, and what he did with his children, when you look at it, the way that he treated them was terrible. And he is God's anointed. And with each ruler in the Old Testament, the Jews were waiting expectantly for a uniquely perfect Messiah, and they never got one. There was always things that they, oh, wow, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ, the person that God has brought along at this time. I thought God could do better. Actually, you can't. You know why? Because each one of those little messiahs that God brought along, they were like us. They were sinners like us, feet of clay. And we might even have good intentions, but we all fall. And here we see the Jews were expecting a Messiah and they weren't even coming up to the expectations of the the average Jew when they actually looked at the life of these people. But what would they have been thinking when they read, as was read out to us from Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 11, a picture of what a Messiah, an anointed one from God, would look like and what he would do. Have a listen to it again. And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. And he, this one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every nation, every people and language should serve him. You know that Jesus used the expression son of man to refer to himself again and again and again. That's where it comes from, Daniel chapter 7. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And then we come to the end of the Bible into the book of Revelation and we read Revelation 22, Jesus saying, look, I am coming soon And my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning 
and the end. And a bit further down in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. At that point, he's referring to a very faulty mini-Christ, a mini-Messiah in the Old Testament. And he's pointing towards through the lineage up into the New Testament of the mega-Messiah, Jesus. He goes on to say, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And both the bright spirit and the bride say, come, let anyone who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life freely. That's the kind of Messiah that the Jews or anyone would like. You come to him and you have life. David never offered that to his people. No one in the Old Testament did. You know, the word that is translated as Christ or Messiah, it occurs 528 times in the New Testament. And every time it refers to Jesus, except for a few places where the, the Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, is referred to as the false Christ, the false Messiah. So there's only two groups of messiahs. There is Jesus, the true Messiah, and there will be other ones that are pretend messiahs, false messiahs. They're the only two groups. Jesus is the ultimate, unique, perfect, and permanent Christ, the Father's anointed prophet, priest, and king, all in one person. You know, a few people would have had glimpses of that in the New Testament, of the, the glory of Jesus at the transfiguration. And when uh, Jesus was baptised, uh, this is my beloved son. The transfiguration, this is my son. Listen to him. A few people had short glimpses of Jesus' glory, but there will come a day when the whole universe will know that Jesus is the Christ, the one that has been chosen by the Father to be the ruler. That is the Christ that when we say we believe in Jesus Christ. Is that what you think of when you say that? Is it what you'll think of now? The second point we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. Uh, over the years, sometimes it's been um, uh, said as we believe in Jesus Christ, uh, God's only begotten son or only son. Jesus Christ is the father's only unique son. The phrase focuses on their unique relationship. The word only suggests one of a kind. <clears throat> Jesus is in a category of himself as christians you know that we can unique we can call ourselves sons or daughters of god we can do that because we are adopted if we are a christian and when we are a christian it also means that we have been born again spiritually 
So in that sense, yes, we are sons and daughters of God. But that is different. There's a qualitative difference between that, between a relationship that starts when you become a Christian and the relationship that Jesus had with his father, which went back into eternity. Some of you will remember the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing was made without him. Later on in verse 17, we find that this Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, but no one really recognises him. The Word that became flesh is Jesus. God's only begotten Son. Later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 17, verse 5, the context is he's very close to going to the cross and he's praying. He's been praying for his followers. He's been praying for the situation that is about to uh, come on him. And he says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what? God is, Jesus is God's only son. He's always been with the Father. What does that mean for us? Do you know that it's on this fact it's because of this unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father, we can come to the Father because the Father has listened to Jesus. If you love the Son, then you are on Jesus' prayer list. Uh, just looking around, do you know of anyone else in the room here at the moment? Do you know that there is someone else who has been praying for you? Maybe you do. I hope you do. There might be small little groups here that actually meet up in growth groups and you're praying for each other. You might have special friendships with people and you're praying for each other because you know something intimate about each other's life. And that's good, isn't it? If you don't, please join a growth group. Come talk to me after if that's something that you're still trying to sort out. Um, and in here, you've, after, after our service, you're mixing, you're ha you know, having a coffee or whatever, and you're talking with other people and you begin to make relationships. And it's with relationships that you begin to actually share yourself with other people. And you might actually think, this is a person, they've got something I can pray to God about. Well, <clears throat> even if there never was, Jesus has got you on his prayer list. Gee, that's encouraging. If you are on Jesus' prayer list as one of his followers, one who loves Jesus, then you can be assured that the Father loves you. You reject the Son and the Father rejects you. Our eternal destiny is tied up to Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. Remember that every time you say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son what that means for you. Our final point. 
We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Uh, the first Christians in that first century in the Roman world had a problem. They had many problems, but here's one particular problem that they had. Uh, you need to know a Greek word. It's the word kurios. That Greek word means Lord. <clears throat> Depending on the context, it could just mean sir. Uh, but uh, it, in uh, the case that we're going to be looking at, it means much, much, much more than just some sort of way of saying sir. It has actually got the idea of the, the ultimate master, the ultimate person. And uh, that's good to know because the problem that the first Christians had was if the Roman authorities wanted to test to see if you were loyal to the state, then you were required to recite the loyalty oath. And this is the loyalty oath that they had to make. Kuros Kaiser. Two words. Kuros Kaiser which means Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do to show that you were being faithful to the state. And Christians had a problem because they could not say that. Christians were not trying to be revolutionary. They weren't trying to bring down the state. They just wanted to avoid rendering to Caesar what belonged to God alone. Now, this is an important time. Um, uh, if, if I was at uh, Scripture, I'd say, kids, put on your thinking caps, turn them on, do whatever you want here. This is a, just a little bit. Yeah, excellent. Thanks. Uh, the word for Lord in the New Testament, which is kurios, was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament the Old Testament was uh, originally written in Hebrew or mainly Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic in it. But every time that the Hebrew word uh, for Lord came up, that uh, the Hebrew word for it, they decided to use the Greek word kuros or kurios. And that word then became the way of talking about the title of God in the Old Testament. So wherever you see the Lord God, by the way, in your Bibles, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about whenever you see the word Lord all in capitals in the Old Testament, every letter is in capitals. It's usually in a slightly smaller print. That's actually a, um, a way of translating the word um, um, Yahweh, or in older translations, Jehovah, Yahweh, and that's God. And sometimes next to that word where it's got Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is another Lord, which is a capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. Whenever in the Old Testament it's the capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's tra translating the idea of Lord that is used in the New Testament for Jesus. Can you see that how revolutionary that is? What it's actually saying about the nature of Jesus? Jesus is God. It was an extraordinary claim to say that Jesus 
is Lord. The Apostle Peter really nailed his colours to the mast in his speech on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You remember the, the time when uh, here he, uh, the uh, people had uh, met in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit came and people started speaking in tongues and there was fire above their heads and there was a mighty wind and everyone was talking in languages they didn't understand and people were saying, what was happening here? Peter says, let me explain it all to you. And here it is from uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 34. He explained that it was a prophecy from the Old Testament. And then he said in verse 34, For it was not David who ascended into the heavens. He's referring to the King David in the Old Testament, the mini-Messiah. It was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and it's using uh, two of those words from the Old Testament of the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's in heaven with the Father. This is Jesus. And he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the crowds listened to this, they said, Brothers, what are we supposed to do? And quick as a wink, Peter says, Repent and be baptised, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's his, not his surname. It's a title. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, you are very familiar now with the, you've heard the word repent so many times attached to the idea of a U-turn. Repent means to turn back and go back to God. Here is another aspect of repentance that Peter is bringing in here. In keeping with Peter's sermon, repenting is acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and living as Jesus as Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, guess what? Caesar is not Lord. I am not Lord. You are not Lord. Who is the There's a great kid's song that uh, I think it's uh, one of, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Colin Buchanan, you know, and it just goes, you know, so-and-so is not the boss, so-and-so is not the boss, so-and-so is. Who's the boss? Jesus is the boss. Read, Jesus is the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of decades ago, I uh, went to hear a, a guy talking in Parramatta at the church in Parramatta. His name was Richard Wormbrand. And uh, he was a Romanian pastor. And uh, uh, when Russia was you know, at, at the peak of its uh, uh, union powers and uh, the, the communists uh, were trying to get rid of all influence of the church. And, he, and Richard Wormbrand just kept on preaching the gospel and people were being converted. And uh, so they decided to lock him up. And they locked him up uh, for a number of years. And it was really dangerous for them to do that because when, he lock, when they locked him up, um, anyone who spoke with him, like all the guards in the, um, in the prison, became Christians. And they didn't know what to do with him. And they just tried to put him into deeper and deeper and deeper prisons to get him away from other people. But God was continuing to use him. 
Eventually, he was released, and uh, he was able to come to Australia for on a, um, a speech tour. And uh, when he was uh, talking, he said, "I've been to a number of churches in Australia, and in, at one place, uh, one of the ministers uh, said." Uh, it's really good you come to this church. You're going to really enjoy this church uh, because it's a Bible-believing church. <clears throat> and Richard Wormburn said, oh, that's really great. It's great you're a Bible-believing church. Are you a Bible-living church? Do you know the difference between believing and living? There shouldn't be any difference, should there? But sometimes there is a difference between what we say we believe and how we live. That's what's behind this expression when we have said, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus had a very diagnostic spiritual question that he would ask his followers in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, you ready for it? His followers or his potential followers, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? That's a pretty diagnostic question, isn't it? You say, okay, let me try to work that. I don't do what he says. I, I guess he's not my Lord. That's what Jesus is driving at. He says, why should you do It's It's illogical. When our church says we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, out loud, is that what you're meaning about your relationship with Jesus? Is he your Lord? That's the question, isn't it? Uh, looking at the Apostles' Creed really has just been an opportunity to spend time in God's word, looking at what we need to know and remember to lead us to genuinely honour God. That's what it's all about. Um, I mentioned this morning that uh, there is a book, a very good book, that does not yet have a title, but it's coming out next year, that Craig has written. And um, it doesn't have a title yet. Maybe you'll be able to help him. I don't know. You're still, you're still waiting for offers? Not all options are valid. I made one option and, and he said, oh, John, no, that's not, that's going to, that's not going to fly at all. Um, <clears throat> uh, the quote is this, and it's, it's about um, how to, uh, I suggested the title is How to Read the Bible Real Good. <laughs> you, you see why. Uh, and uh, in this particular sentence, uh, he talks about the purpose of um, Bible reading, and he uses the word exegesis, which just means reading out of the Bible what is already in there. Okay, So you can actually exegete a newspaper. You're just reading out of the newspaper what is already there. Um, so in his book, somewhere in chapter one, because uh, it didn't have page numbers yet, it will when it comes out. Will that be right? Excellent. <laughs> This is, this is the sentence. I'm really building this up. You're expecting a good one, aren't you? Here it goes. The purpose of exegesis is to ask, what does God want me to know so that I can honour him in the world? I really like that. Will I say it again? 
and just for exegesis, I'll put the other phrase. The purpose of reading the Bible good is to ask, what does God want me to know so that I can honour him in the world? That's what, as we read the Bible, we're hearing God speaking. And as we respond to listening to, it, to God's word in faith, in trust and obedience, responding by saying, yes, that's true, I'm going to live that, then that's treating Jesus as Lord. That's how we do it. A Bible, a, a Bible um, teacher by the name of J.I. Packer, he wrote in a very, very important book called Knowing God. Every Christian should own it, I think. He wrote this. The effect of Christian meditation, and by that it just means the effect of reading the Bible and thinking about it, the effect of Christian meditation is to ever humble us as we contemplate God's greatness and glory and our own littleness and sinfulness and to encourage and reassure us. Furthermore, it serves to comfort us in the old strong Bible sense of the word, as we contemplate the unsearchable riches of divine mercy displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it is no accident that the last words in the Bible are these. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen.